Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to the new episode of FEPS Talks. And today uh, we have an incredible treat uh, because directly from Australia, uh, Professor Rob Manwaring, who is the Associate Professor in the College of Business, Government and Law at the Flinders University, is together with us. Uh, you may know him from a number of books he wrote about social democracy, uh, the connections between the world of labor and political parties. But today he is here with you. He is here with us. Super big welcome, Rob. Lovely to have you. Thanks very much for having me. Look, uh, let's start from the very beginning. As we were preparing for this conversation, um, we were discussing how uh, very nationally focused in the end social democrats tend to be. They know their history, they know the general history of the movement, but not uh, really not always the history of the uh, sister parties. Um, so I want to walk us a little bit back and a little bit being uh, one century. The Australian Labour Party uh, is one of the oldest in the movement, isn't it? That's right. Um, and in fact, I think it's one of the first to be established and one of the first in the world to win elections as well. So the breakthrough when Labour comes through, the Australian ALP, the ALP uh, was a real political earthquake. It was a real game changer. And it reflected both the kind of new European colonised country that was established and federation, which takes place in 1901, but also reflects what was quite significant class conflict as well, is that the particularly a series of strikes across the land and the kind of economic formation of the country. So the Labour movement arrives at a particularly important time in kind of Australian political history. And the party is able to very quickly establish itself as itself as one of the major political parties here. And in one sense, part of the strength of this is that the anti-Labour forces are not able to uh, reconcile as quickly against uh, the kind of emergent and embryonic kind of Labour parties. That's kind of part of the the context. And I think the one thing I would kind of say is um, like what was distinctive about the very early uh, Labour movement is that you've got to remember it was a Labour party and not a social democratic party. And in the sort of early 1900s, a, a French uh, writer uh, came over to look at the labour movement in Australia, Albert Mertin, and he wrote a book and he said he described the labour as son doctrine or son doctrinaire. So he said one of his observations about the early uh, labour movement in Australia is that unlike, say, in Germany or Sweden, it was far less doctrinaire or grounded in some of these philosophical debates about the role of Marx and Marxism. And in one sense, it was always of a much more practical bent about improving the conditions uh, for the workers. So that's something really distinctive about Australian labour, and I think it still plays out today. So it gives you a flavour about its kind of early origins. Indeed. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the parties, the first social democratic party, a Labour Party, in fact, as you described it, to get into the government, 1904, but also the party who um, has been uh, later on describing itself very clearly inside of Socialist International. And in the post-war time, we've been chiefly moving to this very much of the welfare approach, right? I mean, uh, we, of course, 
also remember his uh, the light of the year speech and uh, um, you know today Chifley Institute is uh, part of the Fabs family so I of course have to a little bit refer to that because uh, very frequently when now we talk about uh, you know difficulties that social democracy is facing we tend to be nostalgic about this period don't we? Yeah we do and there's a I mean there's a separate discussion here about myth about within party and labour movements how we look back and how we understand these particular times one of the things you'd say then of course is generally speaking the electoral record of the Labour Party from its movement has not been great but when the Labour Party gets in it tends to do uh, quite radical um, kind of reforms and you can still see that in this kind of current day so what you find is in policy theory which is slightly more arcane they, they talk about this notion of punctuated equilibrium is that political systems go through relatively long periods of stability and then political earthquakes or radical reforming movements happen. And it generally happens to be that it's the Labour movement and Labour governments who produce these political earthquakes. So the Chifley and then the Curtin governments come out of the back of the Second World War. And here the analogy is really strong with the British Labour Party and the Attlee uh, governments. Basically, these Labour governments are thinking about on the back of the Second World War, how do you win the peace? What should a new society look like? And here it's this kind of the, the, the emergence of what we call a like classical traditional social democracy founded upon a welfare state which supports working people, and working men and their families. What happens when you become unemployment? What happens when the market forces um, make your life difficult? And so the Chifley and the Curtin governments are instrumental are in changing, building what we recognise now as the as the welfare state and building, you know, the embryonic health system there. So they become critical and it's partly a function of that political time where they, where they come to there. And Chifley's lie on the hill speech, in one sense, it's quite a vague notion. What is the lie on the hill? But it works because it expresses a kind of a better tomorrow, a better future but for Chifley and Curtin, it's also not just the idealism or the hope, but it's also about what's the, the practical difference a Labour government can do to the everyday working man as it was at that, at that particular time. Let me take you on uh, uh, something that you've just said a few seconds ago about the mutual influence between the British Labour Party and the Australian Labour Party. Um, Because, of course, as you've mentioned, the Australian Labour Party had uh, lots of years in the opposition. But then, uh, you know, following the period of being in the government in the 80s, beginning of 90s, it comes back, but also with the wave and with the notion of the third way, something that, you know, has been for 25 years, at least, if not 35, uh, dominating the discussion among social Democrats and everybody uh, who is interested in social democracy. Uh, you wrote in the book, and I'm going to quote you in here on your Why the Left Losers. Uh, you wrote about the mutual dependence and uh, how it had been a factor of uh, lack of a sort of long-term success uh, with Kevin Root and Julia Gilliard. So how much this connection? Because, I mean, it was a moment where everybody thought, okay, isn't that a modernization process? Isn't that something that precisely would take the old welfare state uh, principles and so on and translate it into the uh, globalization times? Why didn't it work in Australia in the end? That's a, a good set of questions. I think the one thing I would so a couple of things to unpick in that. Firstly, Generally speaking, interestingly, even though there's lots of commonalities between the British Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party, and also the New Zealand Labour Party, they have tended historically to sort of run alongside each other. So actually, the overall amount of like policy transfer or diffusion between the parties has actually not been 
hugely significant up until the point of the 1980s. And so in Australia, what's important is the kind of the period of the Hawke-Keating government. So Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, his treasurer, uh, they come along in the 1980s and they, they, they set up a very effective electoral uh, kind of winning formula. And I think what is so distinctive about this and why I think it appealed to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown when they came out as junior shadow ministers at the time to meet with Keating and Hawke was that there was a view that the global economy was changing really significantly. Countries, Labour parties had to move away from some of their old protectionist kind of political ideologies. They had to move away from relying on the instrument instrument of nationalisation. So Brown and, and Blair were very interested in this embryonic Australian experiment. Probably the only other comparable one probably would be Mitterrand and the changes that he makes within a couple of years of coming in in what, 83, if I remember rightly. Mm-hmm. But for lots of reasons, there's hostility or there's not a lot of ideological synergy between the kind of French PS and the British Labour Party. So they look to Australia. So the Australian model becomes a really uh, an important one because they try and recalibrate very significantly. And there's still a very live debate, really, about whether this government was a betrayal of the uh, of the kind of what Labour stands for. Because there's this big question about what what were the social policies that, in one sense, that looked like Labour, and this is a really sharp debate still around this. And in fact, not even not not that long ago, Wayne Swan, who was the treasurer under Kevin Rudd, for example, wrote a piece saying that Paul Keating was a period of distinctive Australian Labourism. To answer sort of briefly, generally speaking, British Labour and Australian Labour have have not always, have not very often in history really uh, had focal points. There's a really great book by Andrew Scott called Running on Empty, which charts a lot of the history. This kind of period of the third way is, is the influence. So Paul Keating influenced New Labour and then in turn, New Labour influences a number of state governments here and then the Rudd-Gillard government because it's really this kind of question about, well, what does the modern centre-left stand for? And this is the question that they're still struggling with. So this is why it's still uh, opposite, if that if that kind of begins to address your question. No, absolutely, it does. And I think uh, in uh, very often it is, as you've pointed out, misinterpreted uh, or actually underestimated how much of the influence the Australian Labour Party had at the very beginning and formative years of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So for those who are very sceptical about the third way, um, I believe that uh, by now they will uh, follow us by saying, okay, so that was an Australian gift in the end of the day. But the Australian gift uh, is also now uh, about uh, a little bit of an optimism because, I mean, we are, of course, recording this podcast uh, just a few days after the Swedish election. I think, you know, there is a big cloud, if you want, uh, above the Social Democrats. Uh, but where we are looking into for uh, sources of optimism is today, again, after many years, again, in the opposition, Australian Labour Party, right? Uh, I mean, uh, 22nd or 21st of May, um, the victory that wasn't there by default. Uh, so how did it happen? How did you prevent uh, the Liberal Party? How did the Anthony Albanese manage, despite terrible, really, beginning of the campaign, uh, to break through this, uh, you know, run for the fourth consecutive government on the Liberal side? Yeah, so I mean, it's a great question. So yeah, the federal election 2022 in Australia, we've seen a change of government. And so the thing to bear in mind Labour governments winning from opposition is very rare. So in the post-war period, uh, you can say that Labour have really just done it four times. They won it in 1972 with Gough Willem, 1983 
with uh, Bob Hawke. They win in 2007 with Kevin Rudd and they win it in 2022 with Anthony Albanese. So Labour, generally speaking, don't have a, a huge uh, winning electoral record here in Australia. Liberals generally are uh, tend to win, stay in office for much longer which reflects, I think, a relatively right-leaning party system. So it's really unusual. The, the thing that you would say is that it's taken a number of leaders to change. So in one sense, uh, Bill Shorten, who's the former Labour leader, he particularly uh, polled very badly in Australia. So when the sort of Rudd-Gillard years, one of the unfortunate aspects was the infighting, because, of course, it were... Uh, Gillard challenges Rudd before he sees out his first term. So there's infighting there. So it takes the party quite a while to, to bed down. It's infighting. Bill Shorten gets two goes. He gets the 2016-2019 election. And in 2019, Labour were expected to win. And in fact, they didn't because for two main reasons. They were seen as basically, Shorten wasn't seen as a particularly popular leader. And secondly, they had a very ambitious tax agenda. So they wanted to introduce a whole series of significant closing of tax concession loopholes, particularly things like what are called franking credits here, uh, closing negative gearing. These are sort of technical tax policies we want to talk about. But basically, it, it was the argument was it scared the electorate. And so the Liberals, despite being a relatively poorly run government without any really significant policy ideas, get back in again. So Albanese, the change of leadership helps the party, although um, Albanese is not still seen that, that superbly kind of popular. He wasn't in the run of the campaign. But what Labour do is that they, in one sense, remove some of these more ambitious kind of um, tax policies. So the argument is, or critics might say, that actually Labour have got in uh, to their credit, but they've hollowed out. So in one sense, they've backtracked on a number of significant policy decisions. The most significant is the what are called in Australia the Stage Street tax cuts. What the Liberals promised to do under Scott Morrison is remove an entire income tax bracket, a 37% rate. So in effect, what the Liberals have done is a classic neoliberal assault on the, on the welfare and tax system by removing an entire tax bracket, which of course is highly regressive and an anathema to, to those of us who are on the progressive side of politics. But Labour, in one sense, felt that they were so damaged after the 2019 win that they had to sign up for this. And they still are, at the moment, Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, hasn't released his budget, is there's this kind of question about whether Labour will, what they will they do about the fact that they are now have lost uh, an entire income tax bracket, lost a source of revenue, and how can they they kind of repair that kind of situation. So that's a very long answer to your short question. And the short answer to your question is, why did Labour win? They changed leader. And basically, they neutered a lot of their more radical and redistributive policies. But um, once to come back for a moment uh, for the campaign, because uh, you've spoken now about the main issues. And of course, the issues do not surprise taking into account, uh, you know, how much people are longing for some sort of a stability, hope and uh, a way out of what they see as impoverishment following COVID and uh, looking at the current uh, context of the crisis, which perhaps wasn't 
uh, that's evident uh, um, just before the summer. But now, uh, you know, cost of uh, living prices is also one of the first points on the Australian uh, Labour Party's agenda. But if we look at the dynamics of the elections, um, I want to particularly focus on one more issue, because normally speaking, the Australian partisan system is seen as a very rather classical uh, two parties and one, two parties dominate. Of course, high level of turnout, which, you know, uh, might surprise, uh, but that's, of course, also due to the compulsory voting, 90% almost for the House of Representatives and uh, the Senate which uh, this time was not, by the way, I've read it up. Uh, it wasn't that uh, high um, as it uh, used to be in the past. Uh, but you also have the newcomers around the block. It's true that the ALP is in the uh, six out of eight territories. Uh, but when it comes to Senate, they have to cross over to Greens. Uh, so what's the basis of this sort of newcomer to the block and uh, the Greens uh, um, sudden emergence in such a power as they seem to be these days? Yeah, a couple of things going on there. First is a general trend in most Western European party systems and comparative Anglo-Sphere ones has been the decline of the vote share of the major parties. So you see that in many kind of countries. You see it in you know, the French presidential elections as a classic example of where the two traditional mainstream left-right parties have just almost disappeared. Similarly, this is happening here in Australia. So you're right, Australia is often seen as or categorised as a two-and-a-half-party system because the Liberals uh, govern in coalition with the National Party, which is the small agrarian party, so we call them the coalition. So it's often said, described as a two-and-a-half-party system, but that's actually not a very accurate descriptor. Over the last, well, fact 50 years the vote share for minor parties has increased radically at the so the 2022 election the vote share for minor parties in the lower house which has a majoritarian electoral system which doesn't favor uh, smaller parties was near was 30 percent so the primary vote for minor parties and independents was at historic highs so one of the things that happened in the election result the sort of party dynamic is the fragmentation of the right side of politics and in fact, one of the reasons why Morrison lost is that there were these, these candidates called the Teal Independents who were moderate liberals frustrated that the Labour Party, uh, not the Labour Party, the Liberal Party had not been able to deliver on climate change in particular. And as a result, there was a backlash against incumbent liberals in moderate liberal held safe seats. So if you look at Labour's primary vote, actually Labour's primary vote has gone down. And the vote share of the minor parties have gone up. So there's been an ongoing shift away from the major parties. So if we're, when we use instruments like the Australian election study, you can see that the vote share or the number of lifetime voters for the major parties has gone down radically. So the, the breakthrough of the Greens, in one sense, is not a surprise, really, because the party system has been really pushing that way for quite some time now. And part of the story is not so much that Labour won, but the Liberals have fragmented and the centre-right is fragmenting. And so that's in partly they lost the election. I'm always finding it so terrible. We start from saying, like, you know, we are in the government, there is a hope and so on. And then we start looking at numbers and, uh, they, uh, you know, suddenly our hope uh, gets to crumble. But uh, staying on that note just for a moment, um, because uh, we've already discussed how much the leadership uh, matters, uh, right? And uh, you've shown... Uh, 
how in the post-war period uh, the person of a leader would sort of predefine uh, the capacity of the party to uh, win the elections or at least stand a fair chance to win them. But also there have been an interesting sort of uh, things going on when it comes to the party membership and when you now uh, say about the fragmentation of voters. So um, because we have been drawing a lot of parentheses, I'm wondering on one side, how was it possible for the Labour Party to sort of uh, come back when it comes to the membership? Because I read the statistics that uh, are showing that in 2007 uh, it plunged to the lowest level possible being 26,000 while now it's back on the level let's say of uh, 60,000 with uh, 70, 80,000 being the top uh, level ever in a history. And on the other hand, it seems that there is, similarly to the other uh, progressive parties, that it is facing the same predicament, that more and more it sees the urban, well-educated, well-off voters who are forming the core of its electorate. Am I correct on that one? Actually, I need to sort of double-check the party the numbers in terms of where they are, but generally speaking, overall members of party membership are really low, and they are in most countries, but they're particularly low in Australia. I think it's about, from the last census, it's less than 2% of the population who are a member of a party. It's very small. Yes, there might be a slight uptick in recent times in certain areas. And there, there was certainly a desertion, I think, of members after the, the instability of the Rudd-Gillard years. So it got kind of factional. But I think what seems to be an interesting kind of wider phenomenon is how what were mass parties are transitioning into sort of other different types of kind of parties, the way in which they're trying to use data-driven campaigning techniques. And a lot of the literature and the scholarship now is talking about like the the spectrum of, of ways that the public engage in a party. So it's not just a case of member, non-member. You have supporters, but then you have uh, more loosely affiliated people who will kind of coalesce or progressives who will who will kind of who can engage on certain issues. So that sort of discussion about, you know, binary membership numbers is important because it says something about the legitimacy of the party. But actually, given, you know, modern data techniques, it's, it, there's a sort of more complex kind of story going on there. Just going back to your earlier point about kind of hope, really. And I think what I would say is, is I think there is grounds for hope. And I think that even though my reading would be that Social Democratic and Labour parties are have reduced their electoral vote shows. They're still going to be a really important part of how most future governments will form. I think that's that's the case. And in the case of the Labour parties, I, I mean, my reading would be I think they're already on course for a second term because they've managed to do a number of things. Firstly, they're just uh, acting like adults. Uh, and they're just being generally competent on the whole. So one of the problems around the Morrison government was some of the clientelism around how they were doing spending. And there were a number of specific cases of just, frankly, dodgy kind of ways of spending funny and money. And so to a certain extent, the Labour Party are just being actually more sensible and more competent. Uh, you know, the, the Liberals were just kind of, and that's that's a good thing. And secondly, they also managed to be, um, they've recognised that the electoral maths are much more complex. So they're working with both the Senate and the crossbench in the lower house to broker deals. So we've had like 10 years of climate wars here in Australia, but actually Labour very quickly have passed their climate bill, which is enshrined the, the minimum 43% target, which you know, the coalition wouldn't touch with a barge pole for a long time. And so they've kind of just sensibly kind of got on there. So actually there is a level of pragmatism and sensible kind of governance here. And also in foreign policy, they've just 
trying to re-get back engaged with the region, which actually is a cause for hope. So you kind of, so yes, they might never reach the high point of say the, the charisma of the Hawke Keating years or even that electoral strength, but actually they're doing what Labour governments have historically done quite well, which is actually deliver practical, meaningful differences to people's lives. And so, so in one sense, even though I share some of the pessimism, particularly when I wrote The Left Loses book, <laughs> there's grounds for qualified optimism. But since we've gone into the issues, because the government is indeed uh, sort of at least, uh, you know, uh, three quarters uh, of a year into the into being in place, um, uh, it looks like a model government. I mean, you have uh, uh, almost half and a half division between men and women in terms of a key portfolio. You have also uh, women. You have a modern approach, a swift approach to certain policies. You've mentioned climate change. But what else can we expect from this uh, government in what you've already described as the run up for the second term? You know, I've mentioned that just before the conversation that I did a little polling around my friends, what they would like to hear us discussing today. And migration came very, uh, very strongly. There's also the question of the foreign policy, of course, uh, you know, taking into account the uh, war that uh, Russian invasion in Ukraine has caused. Everybody is looking at the situation in the Southeast Asia and what can come out eventually from that side of the world. You've just mentioned that the government is engaging in that actively so uh, what can we expect that's a good question uh, a couple of i mean a couple of things spring to mind firstly we've just had uh, what's called the jobs and skills summit here so on domestic economic policy one of the things that labor pledged is that there's been some of the chronic economic problems which have not been handled or, or directly addressed by the liberals for a, quite a long time which labor want to tackle on so Labour shortages in key sectors, sluggish kind of economic growth, obviously, but wage, uh, you know, uh, wage stagnation has been a really hits the kind of economy and skills. So the what Labour have done is they've brokered a kind of a summit between capital and labour to try and forge a path forward. And again, this harks back to something that the Hawke-Keating government did. It was called the Accord. It's a very famous kind of corporatist agreement between business and well, actually it was the government and the unions. And here, I think they're trying to emulate but do something quite different around this. So from that, we haven't seen the detail yet about what's going to come out. So I imagine between the next three to six months and bound up in in the first Australian uh, Labour budget in a number of years, we'll see a series of policies. So probably the most significant of those will be pretty much close to universal uh, childcare from a Labour government. So again, as you alluded to, this is a government very focused on gender politics and gender, the economic kind of uh, plight of women in the labour force. So I think we'll see policies which wrap around that, including the gender pay gap. So I see that we don't quite know the detail of it yet. And also there's some problems around um, that wage stagnation, which they all tax the tax reforms I alluded to earlier, which have gone down to. So we'll see some movement there. That will be significant. We've had the climate change bill. Uh, In terms of foreign policy, again, there's been a sort of recalibration here about particularly really strenuous engagement with the Pacific region. So one of the things that came up, it was it was quite interesting. One of the contrasts is that um, in the last, you know, last kind of six, nine months, whatever, the situation in Russia and Ukraine has directly exercised many uh, European kind of governments about as like the key foreign policy issue. And in one sense, Australians are concerned about that. And of course, they condemn outright the invasion there and they look on aghast and they offer their their moral support. Uh, President Zelensky has spoken, uh, you know, by telecast to, to Australians here. 
But apart from the oil implications or the energy implications of this, the big issue in particular that's played out in the election campaign was uh, the role of China in the Pacific region. And what you're seeing here is a very activist foreign secretary in Penny Wong, who's a, a woman of Malay background. She's a gay woman who's the uh, foreign secretary. She is um, taking a very strong stance to recalibrate Australia's place within the region because there was a there was an argument that under the Liberals in particular, they reduced the aid bill to many Pacific countries and they didn't see that actually having economic interests in these Pacific islands was also a way of trying to put a break on Chinese influence. So this is a very complex area of international relations and foreign policy, but I think we're going to see some more further movement here about a recalibration. I think a lot of that dogmatic language against the Chinese government has sort of Labour have stepped away from. So for the first time in years, there's been uh, high level talks or, or, or communication between China and the Australian Labour government. So that's a that is a, a sort of significant uh, kind of step change we've seen there. So these are some of the main things that they're going to do. The final big policy thing, which I think your listeners should be useful to know about, is constitutional change. So one of the big issues is what's called the voice to parliament for the Aboriginal people. So Australia, like Canada, like New Zealand, has a historic legacy of colonisation and reparations for its Aboriginal people. And one of the first acts that uh, Albanese has pledged is what's called the voice to parliament, which involves a constitutional change. Briefly, that's really difficult to achieve because it needs what's called a double majority. You need a majority of the vote and you need the majority of the states to vote for it. So only something like uh, seven of the 44 referendums have ever passed. So it's a very difficult thing to do. But this is why, uh, but this is high on the agenda. So I would expect very, you know, within the year, coming year or so, the, the referendum uh, question to be formally released and the work to be pledged to, to make that happen. So this is some of the big stuff that's that's kind of taking place here. And just uh, for a grand finale or cliffhanger, if you want, I have to ask this question because, uh, you know, you've mentioned before uh, the um, sort of uh, close sister relationship uh, between the different Labour parties in the world. And uh, just yesterday we read uh, Jacinda Ardern talking about uh, how Commonwealth might be bound to change, taking into account the passing of Elizabeth II and uh, the discussion that is revived about the future of the Commonwealth. Now, she said uh, um, that uh, she imagines that though her government wouldn't be embarking mm. on the question of the referendum just yet, uh, that in her lifetime she will see uh, New Zealand uh, uh, becoming a republic. Now, you can imagine that I absolutely have to ask about uh, the Labour Party position in Australia and what your views on that are as a sort of a grand finale. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I should probably separate my views and the views of the official <laughs> policy of the Labour Party. Um, and as a British citizen living in Australia, I've also got a kind of a dual identity on this. So I think, quickly thing to say, my reflection around where is the sort of public mood around this? Generally speaking, I think polling, there is, there is a moderate a degree of support for republicanism. But generally speaking, I think there's a sort of shrugging of shoulders. Many Australians are like, you know, why? What's the, what difference would it make? Um, so in one sense, the Republic movement needs to be kind of stronger and more, more on the front foot in terms of making sense. So I think a lot of Australians 
can be persuaded into adopting to republic. The thing to bear in mind for your listeners is that in 1999, there was a referendum on holding a republic or Australia becoming a republic. And the question itself really split the republican movement about the model. So one was a directly appointed and one was a directly elected kind of model. What happens, it was a clever move by the Liberal Prime Minister John Howard to split the Republic movement. And so the Republicans, even though they're a majority, lost the referendum. So that 99 referendum is still cast a really long shadow over those like me who would like to see constitutional change because it's a um because if you lose constitutions uh this which speaks to my earlier point so generally the albanese government is softly pro-republican in that sense but or they would countenance moving towards that but the priority is the constitutional voice for aboriginal people so in one sense, I think the you won't see any really significant movement on this by an Albanese government in this term, that's for sure. And then just to put on record, my own particular views is, is for me, there is no obvious reasons why Australia cannot and should not more forcefully move for this. Because there's a couple of reasons why I think it's it's worth kind of flagging this. So one of the most significant moments in Australian political history is 1975, is what's called the constitutional crisis, when the Governor General, the Queen's representative in Australia, dismissed the Whitlam Labour government uh, against many constitutional um, conventions of the time. So here you had the head of state, in one sense, forcefully removing a democratically elected kind of government. So for me, it's critical that, uh, you know, a head of state should reflect the country where they come from. And I feel that uh, a lot of people, one of the views was that we couldn't talk about having a republic until the Queen had passed away. And uh, that, for me, I thought was a logic which doesn't really necessarily hold uh, to a great degree. But what I feel like is that this is the moment to make a strident case. This is a way that you can relaunch your nation, you can reset the, the politics, and you can, go back to your theme, you can have a new hope. And this, I think, would be the way forward. Rob, thank you so much. It has been an absolutely fascinating talk. Uh, and I think that uh, though, as we've uh, been uh, pondering why the left had been losing in the past, as you say, now with the clear agenda, uh, strong leadership that still uh, is in the run up for already the second round. There is a lot to take, a lot to learn and a lot to look forward to when it comes to Australian Labour Party. Thank you so much uh, for taking us uh, for a journey through uh, um, over a century of a history and taking us into the debate about the future. Rob Manwaring, the senior lecturer, the professor of Flinders University in South Australia, was our guest at the Febstock. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Febstalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.